are back with another very special stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of the Brando Cast. God damn it, my guest today is one of my favorite people in real life. A friend in real life, not a Hollywood friend, a real friend, a person to talk to on the phone and figure shit out with. However, I would say she's one of my most hardworking friends. If you check this goddamn person's IMDb page, you will just see nothing but show after show after show after show and movie after movie after fucking movie. And I do believe that she is on location somewhere secretly in the world right now. So joining me, my most insanely talented friend and my spiritual advisor, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Miss Diane Barr. <laughs> in my pocket and just do that like every day that was lovely thank you you know i've never been a publicist but uh that would just be a different approach to things as i just accost people on red carpets and say let me just tell you something about my clients today (laughs) (laughs) i was hosting something on a red carpet and there's literally a job called advanced people and the advanced person comes up to tell you how important their client is before you get there. So the advanced person I met on a red carpet was for Victoria Gotti. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So this explains to you that they are there in advance because you're really like, who? But clearly they have some amount of fame and a lot of money. So they've paid this person to walk in front of them and be like, here's what she's famous for and what you want to ask her. So of course, as you know, an actor of any kind, you don't ask any of those things. Of all the dumb jobs I've ever heard of in Hollywood, <laughs> advance publicist person. Yes. I'm uniquely qualified for that one. Cause I think I would do a pretty good job with my friends. You would be amazing. Amazing. <laughs> You would be the best advanced person. Wait, there's a political term for it once because someone tried to hire Lenny Clark, the amazing comedian Lenny Clark that I worked for forever with Dennis. A politician in Boston tried to hire him as an advanced person, whatever politicians call that, because Lenny Clark is one of those people that remembers every person's name. So could you imagine as a politician walking in a room with a comic, everyone loves next to you and he's going, that's Brendan Smith. That's Diane Farr. That's he like he literally could tell you every name. So th- this job exists in more than one bullshit occupation. Wait, so this was Rescue Me Era? Rescue Me Era Dennis? That's the Dennis that you threw out? Yes. Rescue Me Era Dennis Leary is BFFs with Lenny Clark for 40 years. And then I have the pleasure of the job and rescue me with both of them. And the advanced person I met, I'm now realizing it was the comedy central roast of Dennis Leary. So they put me and God rest his soul, Patrice O'Neill on the red carpet to in, to like say hi to people as they came up and make fun of Dennis. Patrice took it upon himself to make so much fun of me that I eventually had to divorce him and go to one end of the carpet and the other because we were fighting the entire time. <laughs> but <laughs> this is how I learned what an advanced person is. All right. Well, I'm your advanced person, and I'm here to tell everyone listening today that I'm so fucking excited to talk to my dear friend, Diane, my friend in real life, not my Hollywood friend, my friend in real life, who has a fabulous 
jacket on today via the power theater of the mind people it's a denim jacket but i believe the sleeves have been cut off and something better has been put on like a knits beautiful multicolored multi-design thing with then some wonderful patches on the shoulders you are so much fun. Can I tell you why I'm wearing this lovely thing? Because I am on location in Vancouver and um, I'm in quarantine, which is like rich people prison. So I'm in this gorgeous house and I can't leave. And you would think that I packed one sweatshirt for the two weeks I would be in my pajamas. No, I don't have one sweater or one sweatshirt. I'm living in a denim coat because it has embroidered sleeves. So please forgive me. I didn't shower, put on makeup, or brush my teeth for this. I, I know it looks like I put myself in wardrobe. I did not. <laughs> well, you look fabulous. I want you to, hey, just help me walk people through the whole process of quarantining before production. Are you allowed to say what show you're working on? I am not. I can tell you, you Fair enough. give a shit when you mm. do isn't it amazing that we have this pretentious thing of you can't tell anyone? I used to joke all the time, like, do you think firemen have to sit around each other? Like, oh, oh, you're on the job. Can Which house do you work on? Are you at a ladder company or an engine? Uh, or, or if you can't say, that's totally fine. That's totally fine. I don't think you're a dick. Of course I sound like a dick. But now they get so mad at you. If you say anything, I'm like, who cares? So I can't tell you what I'm doing. I can tell you, you won't care when I tell you later. <laughs> uh, totally, totally fair. I totally get the politics of Hollywood, but Hollywood, by the way, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares. However, you still have to quarantine when you travel to Vancouver to shoot a show. Yeah. How long is quarantine? 14 days. Holy Christ. And they have had no adjustments to the fact that I was fully vaccinated when I got here. I came up to do one job, which I can tell you was a good doctor and I love these people. And it was like, just so you know, you're going to have to quarantine for 14 days. I have three children. That was a gift. That was like a huge selling point. You had me at 14 days. So I come up, you have the amount of paperwork required to fly here is, is unbelievable. Like there's a person at each production just hired to do the level of paperwork. You have to prove that you've had food delivered, medicine delivered. You have to have like one-on-one -on -one transportation to that place. You cannot leave. The government calls you every day to make sure you're in the house. Then the government sends a person to the door where you have to go outside, show them your ID, and they ask you a bunch of questions. This time, this is my second quarantine, now they have this three-day rule that the second you land, you have to go to the hotel of their choice for three days where you have to eat their food and do their things. This sounded really like, I, I, I'm an actress, I don't eat gluten, how am I gonna? So the way you avoid that is you fly to Seattle, you drive over the border because their three-day hotel thing is a function of flying. So I drove to Seattle, took the most gorgeous drive ever through Pacific Northwest, came over the border, took an hour. The COVID test you on the spot, even though I had to have a COVID test from 72 hours before. And then I drove right to this house and I have not left him 12 days. That is phenomenal. Do you have the same person who checks on you every day from the government who shows up at your door? Oh my God. Okay. They only show up at the door one time, okay. uh, but here's the funniest. I, I spoke incorrectly. They don't 
call me every day. They email me every day. But here's the first time I came, they were calling me every day. So after the fifth, maybe the sixth day, I get this call from this lady this day and she's asking me, do you have any sniffles? Do you have any, like she's checking all my symptoms. And I'm like, no, no, this is so nice. You people are so nice. Um, and at the end of it, I said, I just have to tell you, it's so cute. We, we, uh, we just got a real president at the time in America. I was like, I, it's so nice to see a federal response. I think it's so adorable that you call me every day. And she says, this is the first time we've ever called you. And we both realized I was a victim of a scam. <gasps> what? Somehow, when I came through the airport, it was really late at night. It was one in the morning. There were about 10 people that checked me in. One of them took my information. So every single day, a scammer was calling me trying to get like the one zip code or the one thing they were missing to steal credit cards. So when this lady explains it to me, I was like, Oh my God. And I'm so afraid because I'm like, I've been telling them everything. Like they know where I'm quarantining. They know I'm alone. If they come to get me, I'm so scared. Cut to, of course, the next day on that quarantine is the day the government shows up to check on me. I was like having an out of body experience thinking they're coming to rob me. Turns out it wasn't. It was an actual government employee checking on me. But come Monday morning, the calls start again, and I know they're a scam. One day they called me twice. I was so nervous. I had to. I had to put myself on that like, do not let anyone open a credit card in my name list. I had to cancel all my credit cards because one of them was already robbed. And once I did all of that and realized, oh, they're just looking for money. They're they're sitting in some you know little shed somewhere enjoying drugs, which are fun and recreational until you're robbing people's ID. So. One day they called me two times in one day. And finally, the Brooklyn, the Brooklyn came out before I could help myself. Did you go, you son of a bitch? I know what you're doing. It was worse. I just would have let her off the phone. I was like, where are you calling from? And she's like, oh, our address is, what's your supervisor's name? Uh, my supervisor's at lunch. Really? What time did she leave for lunch? She left at 1.15. Really? What's her last name? Tells me the last name. What's her address? Gives me an address. I'm like, do you think your boss will mind that I know her first name, her last name, and her address and where she went to lunch? Uh, no, really? I just need your zip code. I was like, do you know I wouldn't give you my zip code if my life depended on it? She's like, um, this is not a scam. I said, really? Really? Do you think I'm so stupid that when you called me twice today, I wouldn't recognize your voice? Do you understand that I do voice over work, you fool? And she says, I, I just need to know if you have any symptoms. And I said, I have all of them. I have COVID. I have COVID coming out of my ears. What will you do now? Silence. Total silence on the phone. I have COVID. I'm from America and I'm in Canada and I have COVID. What are you going to do? She said, well, you better go outside and, and get a test. I said, did you just advise me to break my quarantine in Canada and to infect other people with the disease? She hung up on me. Wow. <laughs> Oh, and then I felt much better. I, I'm so disempowered for eight days, and then I won. 
<laughs> you have such a colorful life. That is why I'm so fucking excited to talk to you today because you have you have such a colorful life. That is fantastic. Thank you. I, I had no idea that people were doing that kind of scam, though. Yeah. When I said it to the proper woman on the phone, just by, you know, like the grace of God, I haven't say it to the right one. And she was like, there is a scam going around and here's some of the techniques you should know. Like when they call and say, can you tell me where you are? I can say to them, no, you tell me the first half and I'll fill in the second, which is great. And I was like, why didn't I have this information to begin with? But I, I get it. And she's like, we're only allowed to ask you these three questions. Any other question is not real. Like it was very, it's like you're stuck either way. It it was so truly nice to see a government like really working at keeping their people safe. But meanwhile, you know, there has to be a scam (laughs) somehow. Well, you're providing a public service, by the way. If you're traveling to Canada, people, and you're going to do some sort of production, just know. Don't give your information away like this. Make sure you're dealing with the real person on the other end of the line. Yes, you should get one. You get an email every single day from Arrive Canada, and you have to fill out, do you have any symptoms? No, and it clocks you every day. You should get one phone call from the government to make sure that you're okay. And when they say, can you please give me your birth date? I say, no, you give me half and I'll give you the rest. And they say, would you like me to give the date and the month or the year? Like they, they're that agreeable. And then when they come to your door, Brendan, could you imagine how apoplectic I was the first time? And the, the guy, the like concierge at the hotel is saying, they have to come in your room. I'm like, they, they have to come in my room. He goes, no, 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 no. They just come to the door. They have to make sure that you're inside. You're, you're in quarantine. Of course they can't come in. I say, okay. The guy comes upstairs. He knocks on the door and I said, hi, I'm in here. And he said, Yes, but I need to come in your room. And I was like, no. <laughs> and he says, uh, no, I'm from the government. I said, I don't give a fuck. I'm in quarantine. Why the hell would you want to come in my room? Ma'am, you are the seventh person I've checked today. I have to come in your room. I was like, I don't care. I'm 50 years old. No, I refuse. And I was truly like, thank God I'm 50 years old. Because if I was 30, I would be like, Okay. I said, no. He said, I I can't leave. And I said, all right, I'll call downstairs and get two witnesses. So I called downstairs. It turned out what there was a language barrier. I don't think English was his first language. And I think what he was trying to say is, I need to see you. I need you to open the door. But what he kept saying is, I have to come in. In a hotel room where you know I'm alone? No, masked man. (laughs) So as the hotel and I went over it later, because I called them like, did you get an ID from that guy? And they were like, I'm so glad you called. This is only the third day the government's been doing this. And we didn't quite realize, I'm like, that you sent a masked man to a woman's room who he knew she was alone inside and had no other way out. He's like, right, right. But now we know. So... (laughs) you're just helping everybody out by going through all this stuff oh my god could you imagine my poor agents and i was a freaking guest star i was like you're not allowed to have problems when you're a guest star like you're you're just supposed to be quiet like it's not my show where i could be like hey I, i need my own bodyguard for quarantine this was like please don't tell production and they were like you don't want us to tell production that you've been robbed i was like well can i can i just report it to the government and they were like no we're going to tell production 
When, uh, let's wrap this part up. When are you shooting? I start shooting. I'm out of quarantine in three days. So then I do wardrobe, hair, makeup, um, immediately. And then I'll start the next day. Fan goddamn tastic. And then hopefully you're coming back to Southern California. Yeah. My friend Diane has had a very colorful life as you've just heard. (laughs) She is not only an actor, she is an author and she is a former club promoter as well. (laughs) She is a host. She's worn many, many hats and music has been a big part of that journey for her. So today on the Brandocast, what we're going to do was we're going to take a trip through some of the artists that have, oh, I don't know, we'll find out, sort of spark some things in her life. Billy Squire is an American rock musician and singer who had a string of arena rock and crossover hits in the early 1980s. His best-known songs include The Stroke, Lonely as the Night, My Kind of Lover, In the Dark, Rock Me Tonight, Everybody Wants You, and Emotions in Motion. Squire's best-selling album, 1981's Don't Say No is considered to be a landmark release within the arena rock genre, and it bridges the gap between power pop and hard rock. Billy Squire is also an alumni of Ringo Starr's All-Star Band. Diane, tell me about Billy Squire. (laughs) You are so much fun. Wasn't Billy Squire the best in the 80s? I mean... That was still at the time when you bought a 45 and you put it on that little record player in your room and you stood over the record player and sang into it. <laughs> like, like you were going somewhere with that. Um, so I, I may have owned this nightclub in my early 20s in New York City. I was a cocktail waitress and came up with this ridiculous scam and bought the bar. I bought the bar at 22. It was a blues bar and it had all the best blues musicians in the world. But at 22, I was like, how do you make any money at the blues? The answer is you don't. So I kept like uh, leasing the floors in the building above it until I turned it into a nightclub and hired every unemployed actor I ever met to be the waiters, the bartenders, the doormen. And it was great. It was, it taught me everything about business. Where was it? Where, where was it exactly in the city? It was between uh, 34th, it was on 34th, between 7th and 8th, around the corner from the garden. So eventually we started to host everyone. Everybody who played the garden would throw their private after party at the club because they could play and jam down on the blues level. And each floor as you went up, it was like the old danceateria. You know, like this room is very good for dancing. This room is very good for drugging. This room is very good for like shooting pool and seeing who you were going to hook up with and you could talk. So depending, uh, I mean, we had some fantastic, amazing bands come through, but Billy Squire, I don't remember exactly why he showed up, but the second he walked in, some music head had to tell me like, do you know that's Billy Squire? And I was like, shut up. So at the time, I'm still living in a, as you do at 22, I owned a nightclub, but I lived in a one-bedroom apartment on the Upper East Side with three fools I went to grammar school with. Like, that was that was how we were living. It was a, like, within a year, I had a nice place, but not at the time. I call one of my roommates, and I was like, get down here. Get down to the club because Billy Squire's here because she was the girl at like eight years old that I was singing over the 45 with. She shows up and <laughs> I find Billy Squire and I was like, hey, 
I own this bar. I was 22. I looked like Barbie. I looked like a Mark. Nothing about me is a Mark. And he was like, really? I said, yeah, we have this amazing thing going up on the roof tonight. He's like, what is it? I was like, me and my friend are getting high. You want to come? <laughs> he says, yes. I, like as if he cared if that was a euphemism or not. It was not a euphemism. I didn't smoke pot, but I was like, I can get some. I own a fucking nightclub. I got some pot. I, my girlfriend showed up. We went on the roof and smoked pot with Billy's choir. And we were sitting in the corner like, does this make us cool kids or not cool kids? That we just took our like childhood 10-year-old idol and smoked them out. <laughs> and then I was like, don't leave my side. I, I don't want to hook up with Billy Squire. I just need this story because 40 years from now, they're going to invent this thing called a podcast. And I'm going to tell my friend Brendan the story. Was he fun high? Was Billy Squire a fun hang when he was high? He's a little less fun than I would have wished. But just a little bit. I, mean, I don't actually know how old he is. He might have been like our age now at the time. And we were probably annoying at 22. He was all right. He was, you know, like, and we thank God we're not stupid enough to be like, could you just sing one of the songs for us? <laughs> if I remember correctly, it must have been like one of the people in his former band was playing the club and he came to watch them. We were like, hello, come with us. He, he was a little less fun than I, I would have hoped, but it was all right. Uh, my celeb getting high with a celebrity story is Lindsay Buckingham. Oh, I, I did a I did a play in the early 90s here in the city of Los Angeles with Anne Heche, written by my friend Betsy Thomas, who's been on the show before. Fabulous showrunner, best friend in real life. Um, she wrote a play. It was called Choices, and it was about a young woman going through th an abortion. Uh, Anne Heche was dating Lindsay Buckingham at the time. We did it at this teeny, teeny, teeny theater on Cahuenga right before the 101. There's this big, giant gray building. Uh, it's an apartment building and they have like retail in the bottom, but there used to be like a black box theater and it was only like 20 odd seats. Wow. And one of the people in the audience on opening night was Lindsay Buckingham, you know, five feet away from me for the entire show. We had an after party at our house. We all lived together in uh, Hollywood, a beautiful craftsman home near Fountain in Fairfax and cut to me and Lindsay Buckingham in my bedroom sharing Lindsay Buckingham weed. As you might imagine, your friend Brendan's room circa 1992, 1993 was completely covered in rock posters. I had a six foot European tour poster that was like 1988 Iron Maiden European tour. And Lindsey Buckingham allowed me to ramble on about Iron Maiden for about 20 minutes. I was trying to explain to him how amazing they were. And how important they were, oh. yada yada. And he, but he was the he was so sweet and so nice. It was his weed. That's really an amazing thing. Professional Lindsey Buckingham weed. <laughs> so like, there's Harrison Ford weed. There's Lindsey Buckingham weed. There's Snoop weed. There's Jack Black weed. But at the time in the early '90s, there were no fancy weed stores in Los Angeles. Oh it was Lindsey Buckingham weed. But that was my hangout with a celebrity and get high. Now my my Billy Squire story quickly. April 13th, 1983, Tingley Coliseum, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Billy Squire with Def Leppard opening up. A uh, whole bunch of us go, we are going for Def Leppard. We're already fans of them, even though the album Pyromania had just come out. Def Leppard was really big in New Mexico before that. So the entire crowd was really there to see 
Def Leppard as they were breaking nationally with the song Photograph. Billy Squire was touring on his album Emotions in Motion, and he had almost wrecked his career uh, with the video for the song Rock Me Tonight, which features him in sort of Benetton clothing, prancing around a bedroom and jumping on a bed. <laughs> uh, so here's what happens at the show after Def Leppard finishes and they their set was just fucking ridiculous. Half the crowd left. Oh, my God. Just left the building. So when Billy Squire came out, he came out to a half full arena for a sold out show. And he berated the rest of us for staying. No. Yeah, he did. He he completely berated the crowd in between songs. Like, well, I guess the rest of you stayed, you know, sorry to bore you. Here's another song. It was just really, oh it was really weird. Yeah, he was oh he was God. bummed out because he was the 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 sea had changed on poor Mr. Squire. And he was looking at it and he didn't have any grace. Yeah, that, that's it. When I was going with them, wasn't as much fun as you would want him to be when you got high with them on the roof of your own nightclub. Yeah, I, I, this is all stitching together well. <laughs> My friends and I were focused on a different thing that night because after Def Leppard um, finished my friend Mark Winkworth's older sister, Tracy, started acting strangely. She got dosed. She took a drink from a stranger's Pepsi and got dosed with LSD and spent the night in La La Land. So we actually, during a couple times during the um, the Billy Squire set, we had to go into the the uh, sort of the ER there in Tingley Coliseum just to make sure that Tracy was okay and coming down off of whatever she was dosed with. So that was a big night for me. But it was an amazing show. Gosh. Oh. But I love Billy Squire. I love, I do still love Billy Squire, and I love most of his songs. So there you go. So that is a fabulous story. Diane Farr, thank you. Hey, what was the name of the of the nightclub? Downtime. It was in the Recording and Rehearsal Arts building in New York City. So it was all musicians, like, recording everywhere. And the owner of the building, they were these super cool guys. They were super into music and they had the family business of real estate and how to go and do real estate. But the one youngest brother was like, I'm going to keep some music going. So he opened the blues bar as like an homage to artists, like really wanted to hook them up. And thank God he had enough money that he didn't care that it only, it only made a dollar. Then I came in and was like, no, we need to make some money. You can, you can keep the blues going downstairs. Uh, I'm going to turn this into a club. And, yeah, the rest was history. It was it was a good time. And you made some money and lived to tell the tale. I made some money and learned really everything that I needed to know for my acting career and writing. And, you know, like it, it kind of set you up that like, like talent alone, like it's your responsibility to sort of learn what to do with said talent, like how to how to move the ball down the field. So the club gave me that. OK, last question about the club. And this is a really fucking important question. You know, club world is filled with dangerous goddamn characters. Um, how did you navigate that energy? Because that must have happened to you kind of all the time. All the time with the um, beautiful ignorance of a child. So how about this one? So that floor that I was talking about that had like the pool table and the, um, what are they called? Like pinball machines. These things. The pinball machines and the little... They were like little gambling things that would sit up on the bar and you would put money in it and you would sort of gamble at them. They were always broken, always. So one day I called up the company. I was like, 
get this shit out of my bar. I'm just going to do this, that, the other. And the people were like, are you kidding? And I said, no, I'm not kidding. They said, no, we're not coming to pick up your things. They're going to stay there. And I was like, really? Then I'm going to call somebody else to put them in and I'm going to throw yours in the street. And they're like, that's not a good idea. I'm like, we'll see. I hang up. I start calling other pool table places. Takes me about an hour to realize it's the mob. That's who you rent pinball machines and pool tables and and gambling devices from in the 90s in New York City before Giuliani put us into a lockdown state. So I call like three other places. I'm not paying any attention to their last names. And finally, some man says to me, honey, do you realize what you've done here? Brendan, I am so stupid and arrogant and ignorant as a kid from Brooklyn. I was like, do you know who my grandfather is? Now, my grandfather had been dead for 15 years by then. However, before that time, he was nothing but like a, he was a bookie. He was a bookie and he was from Italy off the boat, but he was also a card man. So I think he was the dealer for like the capos of families when they would have to have a discussion and they would do it over cards. So I was like, do you know who my grandfather is? I start dropping this man's name. Now, my business partners are not of the Italian persuasion. They are of the Jewish persuasion. There were like 10 very nice Jewish families who owned these buildings in New York City at the time. And my partner, who's a full grown adult, is like, stop, stop, please stop. We just will take them out of the room. I'll put them in the closet and we pay every month for the things. I'm like, no, I'm going to keep going. I go back to the original mobsters that I called and said, this is who my grandfather is. And if you're not picking them up because of this, I'm going to take my Italian and throw it at your Italian. They came and picked him up. My grandfather was dead and he had no juice before he died. But I was so belligerent. I, I won the fight with the mob. <laughs> it was insane. Like, I think now of my 40-year-old astute business partner, like, why? Why? But it, it was the only reason why it worked. It was New York in the 90s. It was just, it, it was another planet. Oh, God damn it. Please just, just sell the show, please. Just, <laughs> just, just figure out, just, just figure out how to do this show. I mean, this is like, come on. This is also before cell phones, by the way, correct? Cell phones, we had beepers. That was it. I had an assistant. Oh. I have to say this. The assistant found me on Instagram lately, and he had to reintroduce himself because when he was my assistant, he was female. Oh, (laughs) like this is the club scene twenty years later, and I was like, "Oh, this makes perfect sense." (laughs) The assistant at the time would beat me, like starting at like nine or ten in the morning. And then by the time I, you know, you'd work till four o'clock in the morning. By the time I answered the phone and would call the office, he would be like, there are 20 vendors here. Get down here right now. Like, <laughs> he would yell at me. Yell at me. Get down here. I was like, I'm coming in. <laughs> yeah. It, there are responsibilities when you own a club, huh? Mm-hmm. There was oh. some of it. There was there were some things that happened in the daytime that you had to learn later, like porters and cleaning guns so that like the soda wasn't filled with like algae and yeah, stuff. Oh, that is so brilliant. Eric Clapton is an English rock and blues guitarist, singer, and songwriter. He is the only three-time inductee to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, once as a solo artist and also as a member of the Yardbirds and Cream. Clapton has been referred to 
as one of the most important and influential guitarists of all time. He ranks second in Rolling Stone's list of 100 greatest guitarists of all time and fourth in Gibson's top 50 guitarists of all time. Eric Clapton has also received 18 Grammys. A recovering alcoholic and drug addict, Clapton also founded the Crossroads Center on Antigua in 1998. It's a medical facility for recovering substance abusers. I can't believe that I haven't done a deep dive into Eric Clapton on the Brando cast yet, but let's just take a little trip into slow hand. Diane Farr, what does Eric Clapton mean to you? Oh my gosh. You own a blues bar and he's a god. He's, he's a god to everyone. Like I didn't even have to have studied music to know he's a god. So I don't think it was him who was playing at the garden. It was someone else enormous. It, it may have been Springsteen. Somebody enormous was having their after party and it was super hush hush. I was working as an actor that day and I was going to have to get there late. I was super nervous about the staff and (laughs) by the time I roll in off of set, there's a bunch of people outside and I, and the music is going inside and I see Eric Clapton waiting to get into my club. The bouncers have no idea who he is. And I'm like, Mr. Clapton. And he looks over me. Now, first of all, I'm 25 at the at the most. All right. I weigh a buck 25 soaking wet and I'm almost six feet tall. Mr. Clapton. He's like, yeah. I'm like, come on, come with me in the club. And he's like, no, honey, I, I, I'm going in here to hear music. I was like, no, no, no. I, I know. I, I own the club. Just come with me. He's like, no, no doesn't believe me at all. Like thinks I'm trying to like take him in a hallway to get him high. I'm like, no, 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 I, I, I really own the club. Like when we get inside, you'll, you'll see my picture. He's like, I'll wait. I say, okay. I go inside. I have to get a radio, radio my doorman and be like, look at the guy with the glasses who's 20 years older than everybody else. Get him, get him inside. So they get him inside. He comes inside. And once he's sitting at a table, being the most unpretentious person in, on earth, like right in the middle of the crowd, I come up and I was like, do you want a table where people can't poke you? And he said, oh, okay. So I go up, I, I find him a table in the corner where he won't be bothered and I'm going to sit him down. And he says, thank you very much. And he says, do you want a picture? And I said, uh okay it wasn't it was like pre-selfies but a blues bar would really benefit for with a picture of eric clapton he was being he couldn't have been more gracious i'm like sure now i have to go find someone with a camera like nobody had them at the time i'm running all over now my head of security is literally a lebanese freedom fighter like (laughs) person who would kill for me? Like he, he treats me like I am the lost daughter he's never had. Somehow, as I get a camera, I get a waitress to take our picture and I'm trying to keep him on the down low and safe. Up comes the Lebanese freedom fighter. Who is this man with his hands on you? And he gets on the other side of me. So I have Eric Clapton on one side and I have the Lebanese freedom fighter on the other swatting at Eric Clapton on the other side of my body. And I'm like, stop it, stop it, leave him alone. He's a musician. I'm just going to take a picture with him. The picture comes out with Eric Clapton smiling at the camera and me physically fighting with my own head of security. Like we we look like we're doing this to each other with our hands. 
And I'm like, oh my God, I, I turn around, I, I get rid of the Freedom Fighter. I turn around to Eric Claps and I was like, is this the most annoying night you've ever had in New York? He's like, no, but it's early, darling. <laughs> <laughs> he was the coolest guy in school. How crazy is that for you to have this place where you could just rub shoulders with all these bizarre characters? So bizarre. Like, because I bet the Lebanese freedom fighter had a whole story that was insane. His stories are so nuts. It was crazy. So my brothers would come home from college and they would work there, you know, for the summer as whatever they wanted, bartenders, bouncers, whatever. So I remember him sitting one time having a, a like pre-show meeting with people and he's telling all the bouncers, two of which for the night are my two little brothers. If you must beat them, you beat them in the hallway so there's no blood on the floor in the club. And, I, you know, like, he probably had this speech every night, but I didn't pay attention till my own siblings were, were being asked to drag errant, like, kids on X into the hallway and to beat them in the hallway to protect our ass inside. And I was like, it, you can't, you can't beat New York club kids up in the hallway. Like, they'll stop coming. Like, it will be bad for me. Like, we don't need to love them. One time we threw a party that got really bad. So uh, there were times where you would just hire metal detectors at the door because you knew it was going to be the kind of crowd that was going to bring guns. But if anything goes wrong in the bar, which happened all the time in the 90s, there was a fight, you know, four out of five nights a week. So if anything goes wrong, you throw on the lights and throw everybody out. Now they go outside and get their guns from the car. So there's one night a fight breaks out. They throw everybody out and there's two guys outside on 34th Street holding guns at each other. Lebanese freedom fighter, though. You know how New York um, businesses have those metal grates? As they're throwing people out still into this gunfight, he's pulling down the metal grates, gets all the staff, puts us in the center of the room and makes us lay down on the floor. Oh, my God. You're like looking up like, Oh, right. You really grew up in a war. <laughs> like You have a set of skills we do not have. And we just sat inside till the cops came and took the gunfighters away in, in New York City. Like we, we were not in Fargo. Like, oh, my God. Chelsea, ostensibly. Wow. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's the best. But, you know, all the security people at every like decent nightclub, they, they all they've all killed. They've all oh, murdered. Oh, <laughs> you know I mean? oh. How do you, you sort of threw out early in the Clapton story that you were working as an actor during that period of time. Mm. How did you make the transition from nightclub owning oh, God. to acting? Okay. This is, it, it wasn't the transition. This was supposed to be my pay the rent job. I have this really pristine theater degree from England. I finish and I go home to New York to start my Broadway career. And of course, there is no way to pay my rent because the theaters I were working in were the same ones you were working in with Anne Hayes. So I had a, I had a waitressing job for about a week at Mumbles on the Upper East Side like 90th, maybe, between second and third. So the roommate I had lived up there. When I was saying to her, Billy Squire's here, come down. I needed her to come down from like the 90s of New York to Chelsea. 
um, we're walking together to get a plug while we're on, while we're on. It's so I can see that you're my first guest to walk on camera. I love it <laughs> because I'm your only guest in quarantine alone in a house. Um, so we, uh, we live on the upper West, upper East side, three of us in the one bedroom apartment. And on my first day at that waitressing job, this woman says, Hey, I'm, I work at this blues bar. They need a cocktail waitress. Cut to, I end up being the cocktail waitress and buying this bar. So I am doing that. I'm like, I'm going to buy this bar and have this really cool pay the rent job. And I'm going to employ all my favorite friends from college who don't work yet. So I did get to employ every actor I had ever met. That part was really fantastic. And then the club started to take off. And they're like, how am I going to? It got to this point where the Springsteen thing was Springsteen was going to throw this secret after party in my club after he played the garden. So I think, how did this work? I was doing a U5 on a soap bar. A U5 doesn't exist anymore. It was a, it was a kind of job called under five lines. I think the equivalent is like a co-star now. So <laughs> I'm doing a U5 on a soap opera. It's the most exciting thing. It was probably my first job in New York. And I had to spend the whole time in the green room negotiating Springsteen's rider for his after party. Then it gets to the point where my house band is the Jimmy Vivino band. Every Thursday, we'd have these huge blues music nights. So... Conan O'Brien's company is trying to break them from my contract to make them the band of the Conan O'Brien show. Conan used to come in the bar and hang out all the time. That's the band he wanted. So I have to negotiate against their legal thing. So I have to let Jimmy out of the contract. This is going to be the biggest thing in the world. for him. He's not staying at my little club. Meanwhile, the same week I get called to do a sketch on Conan as an actor. No one is putting together that the Diane they're arguing with all day over the Jimmy Vivino contract is the same Diane that's been asked to do this sketch. And I remember going to my partner at the time, like, I think I have to say no to the sketch because we had like hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line over the other deal. I was like, the sketch is like a day. And when they put it together, I, so it got to the point where it was like, it couldn't quite do both well. And I was like, I'm 25. If I sell the club, I can always come back to the club, but I don't think I can do under five lines at 50. So I'm going to sell the club and try and just do it full time. And I did. I sold the club at 25 and I moved to LA like maybe a year later, but it, it financed me for like a couple of years till I started managing clubs here until it finally kicked. Every single day in that club is a story. It, it, it just, I can just see, I can see the show. I can see I the know, whole thing. It's, so, it's so beautiful. The, the Jimmy Vivino band, Where the, where's the Jimmy Vivino band today? They're still on Conan O'Brien. Oh, wait, wait, wait. director. Oh, shit. When okay. Conan throws to the musician with black hair, I mean, I haven't seen Conan in a long time either, but I mean, I haven't seen Conan's show in a long time, but the guy he's talking to on the mic is Jimmy. It's still them. 
I have just proved to the world and everyone listening to this podcast that I never really watched Conan O'Brien because I should have known that Jimmy Goddamn Vivino was Conan's guy. Okay, moving on. Diane Farr. Phoebe Snow was an American singer, songwriter, and guitarist known for her hit 1975 songs, Poetry Man and Harpo's Blues. Snow was described by the New York Times as a contralto grounded in a bluesy growl and capable of sweeping over four octaves. Snow also sang numerous commercial jingles for many U.S. products during the 80s and 90s, including General Foods, International Coffees, Salon Selectives, GE, and Stouffer's. Snow experienced success in Australia in the late 70s and early 80s with five big records in that country. Diane Farr, tell me about Phoebe Snow. I love that there's maybe three blues fans that listen to your diehard music love who are going to be like, yes, and no one else knows who the fuck we're talking about. But Phoebe Snow was a goddess of music. Um, Sort of like there were not a lot of women that were popping up in this and certainly not white women. And she just had this voice that was divine. And she had a child that had special needs. And she walked away from the whole thing to take care of the child. So blues musicians revered her. She used to come to the club all the time. Jimmy Vavino on Thursday nights used to host a night. And basically any big blues musician in the world, anyone, Dizzy Gillespie to Al Cooper to whoever you admire and blues would come through and play with Jimmy. So it was just like a jam night. Jimmy did what he wanted. Phoebe would come all the time. So I was 23, let's say. My mother was only 45. And my mother was like, Phoebe Snow is a god. She did for motherhood what no one does. She had to make this awful choice and she chose her kid. This was all I knew. So I would see Phoebe all the time. (laughs) One day I go to her table and I was like, I hope this doesn't sound rude. My mom is about the same age as you and she is so amazed by you. And she just thinks you're the most amazing mother. And she thinks you're so talented. And I just want to share that with you. And she goes, that's okay. Someday you might do the same thing. And out of my 23 year old mouth comes, no, I don't want to fuck children. I want to be an actress. I threw up on this poor woman. No, no, I will not sacrifice. I will do me. I have three children. (laughs) But at the time, I threw up on poor Phoebe Snow, who was like, all right, could you just bring me a club soda? (laughs) Oh, my God. All right. Well, I don't have you for much more time, so I'm just going to say, hey, Richard, hit play, because we're going to hear some Black Flag. Henry Rollins is an American musician, singer, actor, comedian, host, spoken word performer, and activist. Most importantly, Rollins fronted the California punk band Black Flag from 1981 to 1986. Following the band's breakup, Rollins formed the Rollins Band, which toured with a number of lineups from the late 80s to the early 2000s. Henry has also appeared in a ton of films and TV shows and hosted so many radio and cable TV things like the Henry Rollins Show and IFC, 10 Things You Don't Know About on History Channel's H2, and he used to have his own fucking show on KCRW. Diane Farr, what is your Henry Rollins story? I'm so sad to say it was not at my nightclub, but 
At the beginning of my career, I was the uh, the lady on Love Line with Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew. Um, I sat on that couch for 200 episodes and and Henry Rawls. It was supposed to be mostly musicians, right? Love Line was on MTV. They thought it was misogynistic for two guys to tell women what they were thinking. So they add me and maybe the third or fourth year to sit there like sidekick. I was like their Ed McMahon and a skirt freezing my ass off in a soundstage. And the musicians were odd and weird. And then there's Henry Rollins. Like, I'm so glad he's all these shows because holy God, was I not equipped for the level of depth that guy had. So Love Line was supposed to be sex, drugs, rock and roll. You know, I had sex with my girlfriend's mother on a chicken coop, and now there's something wrong with my penis. Like, it, it could not get silly enough. And Henry was just taking them super serious one at a time. He was, he was on a spiritual journey before I knew what a spiritual journey was. And I remember sitting there looking at him like, oh, shit, this is what an artist is. Like there was just more depth in there than I knew. There was clearly pain, but not being thwarted on me. There was no trauma bonding. There was no one appropriate thing. I, I don't even think he saw me on the couch, but he he definitely turned around my perspective of what an artist was on a on a sex talk show. It, he was he was a pretty amazing cat. That's an intense guy. Henry Rollins is a super <laughs> intense guy, and I will also say I say this lovingly. Uh, he is the antithesis. Of Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew. <laughs> He's the reverse Adam Carolla. He is the reverse Adam Carolla. But, you know, like, mm, I I can be prone to the overthinking of things. I love a deep conversation. If we were going to laugh all night or have a deep conversation, I vote deep conversation. Like, that's going to get my pants off faster than, like, dancing the night away. He could, like, he would hold every problem that came in with value and space. It was Drew and Adam had their own versions of the same thing that was mesmerizing when they got to it. But whoo, man, he was deep. Is it interesting to watch both of those guys sort of publicly fumble every once in a while? That's the that's the nicest way I can say it. I like the way you said that. It's very interesting. It's like watching your older brother drop the ball every now and then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Were I- they good to you? Were they good to me? They were very good to me. I love them both. And, you know, I, I don't see Drew at all now because our lives just went a different way. But the integrity he had was kind of amazing. Like, I was the person who would be up in a booth, and it was a live show, right? So there was always a guest, and I'd have to yell their name like, Today on Love Line is Shaq. And sometimes Drew would jump out of the chair and walk backstage. And we all knew Drew is a medical doctor that dealt with addiction. And if he jumped off that stage, there was no way he was going to let somebody out whose um, anonymity might be compromised. Like he had a really clear line, which was beautiful to watch. So it's in there. I mean, even if there is a fumble now and then, he's, he's he's an integrous guy. And Adam is just... Adam is so much smarter than anyone could ever believe. I I mean, I don't think we share the same politics, but in 30 years, it doesn't come up. Like we just don't do it. I've done a couple of movies with Adam, the way his brain goes and how fast it is. Like he's a kind of unbelievable guy. 
do you was there any pressure on you to continue down the sort of the host path after love lines oh my god I, I actually quit Loveline for that reason, because I was like, no, I have a pristine theater degree. I'm like trained in Shakespearean. I was like, no, no, you've got to let me go. And they were not Drew and Adam, but the producers were not happy with me when I was like, please let me go. Please let me go be an actor. Um, I had to sign a non-compete, thank God, because I got an offer for every day. There was like, do you want to come host this? And I was like, no, I really want to be an actor. <laughs> and at the time, there was no reality TV. So that that was as big as the platform got. There was no cable yet at the time. It was just MTV, VH1, and network shows. Cut to you in quarantine in <laughs> Vancouver, about to work on an undisclosed show. All right, Diane. I've had you for an hour and all you did was crush it. And I know that you had one more artist to throw out. Wait, I think my surprise artist is not a musician though. I think it's who is it? Henry Winkler, the Fonz. (laughs) Wait, can we play the theme song to happy days? We we sure as fucking play the the theme song for happy days. Of course we can. Are you kidding me? I'm so glad. Okay. Uh, Henry Winkler. Okay, so people would come on Loveline because it was part of the circuit and it was cool and it was hip. I don't remember what Henry Winkler was doing, but he came on as a guest on Loveline. He was already older than my dad at that time. And he sat down and I did not know it at the time. He was nervous as hell and he could not talk. He was just being polite and nodding and smiling all these years later, we all know he is the nicest man in all of Hollywood. So he's sitting on the couch between me and Adam and he's almost paralyzed. He's so quiet. And finally Adam starts to rib him a little and poke him. And I said, I just have to tell you. And we're on air. I was like, when I was seven years old, I was in Catholic school and they were really rough on you about Lent. Like you had to give up something really important. Like you had to give money, you had to give blood, you had to give hair. It's Catholic nuns in the seventies. They, they wanted everything. And I gave up happy days. <laughs> <laughs> it was the most important thing in the world to me. I think I may have teared up. Like I was so moved trying to tell him and he just said, thank you. Thank you. I got a handwritten note later, a handwritten note that said, I was so nervous. I thought I was going to die. I did not want to talk about sex with kids. And you made me feel like a whole person. The best. That is the best. I I probably gave up Happy Days for Lent circa 1976, 1977, because that was my favorite show. All the photos of me back then have me with a thumbs up going A. A. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my friend. I, you know what? I, I physically have not seen you in a year. And that, isn't that crazy? So crazy. It's crazy. Oh my God. I can't fucking, I just realized that that I'm is so absolutely, this. this is so fun. This oh, is- holy Christ. Well, you're fun. And that was fucking phenomenal. And, um, you know, thank you so much. I'm so grateful for you taking the time out of your quarantine schedule to play the silly game of the Brando cast. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thunderous applause. Okay. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for liking, listening, subscribing, telling your friends. As always, so many great guests coming down the line. And of course, the Brando cast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinga. So until the next time. These days are all.
bright gray sky, hello blue. There's nothing can hold me when I hold you. You feel so right, you can't be wrong. Rocking and rolling all week long.